Hello, everyone. Welcome to this We Did It.Health event. At We Did It.Health, we're working to create a healthy, happy, vegan, and plant-based world. We're doing that through building community and offering resources such as today's discussion to help you create relationships where you plant seeds of hopeful curiosity in others when they ask about a vegan or plant-based lifestyle. So be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We also invite you to join our Facebook communities and check out our website so you can connect with others and find support and encouragement with like-minded people. My name is Marikita Solis, and I'm so excited to welcome Stuart Waldner to tonight's show. Stuart didn't start out to be an activist. After two decades of exploring the Earth's greatest wonders and connecting with sacred sites around the globe, he transitioned to a plant-based diet in 2008. The better he felt and the more he learned about the statistical connections between our dietary choices and the worldwide crises we're about to face, the more he felt called to wake people up for our health and for the planet. When Stuart's not playing, and when Stuart's not working, he's playing with his dogs and he enjoys cooking and eating plant-based foods, running and restoring windows in his 128-year-old Victorian home. So welcome everyone. Uh, please give StreamYard permission to use your name. If you're watching, let us know where you're watching from and get your questions ready for Stuart. Welcome Stuart to our show. Thank you, Marikita. It's wonderful to be here. Um, thanks for inviting me to be on your show. Well, I was very lucky to meet you at Atlanta Veg Fest. And yeah. I thought, wow, this, this guy's got to be on We Did It Not Health. <laughs> well, I'm glad we met too. That was uh, wonderful, and um, so it led to tonight, and that's that's great. So I'm going to be talking about you know escape the matrix and embrace a plant-based lifestyle for a greener planet. And um, you know mainstream media talks a lot that we need to move away from burning fossil fuels like natural gas, coal, and oil, and move toward green energy solutions like solar and wind. And that we all need to start driving electric cars, right? So we hear this over and over and over again. But what the mainstream media doesn't talk about is that climate scientists say that we're not going to meet our climate goals without also decarbonizing the global food production system, that we are doomed to fail unless we tackle the emissions around food. So today, my talk is going to be about uh, sustainable foods, what that looks like, and how, how can we get there? Um, you know, and I believe that um, if we're not a part of the solution, we're part of the problem. And so I'm hoping that everyone will leave today's uh, presentation feeling uh, fired up to be a part of the solution and uh, ready to make changes to help bring this about. Because um, like I said, mainstream media isn't talking about it, but we're at a critical time on our planet right now from climate change to emerging infectious diseases, biodiversity loss, mass extinction rates, environmental degradation, our declining health, you know, to the horrible return on investment of animal agriculture. Uh, I mean, the signs are all around us and I see you shaking your head. That can be a depressing list and it, you can get really down when you hear all of that. But uh, Merikita, the most amazing thing that I learned when I was researching my book is that all of those things and more are connected to the food on our plates and choices that we're making in the grocery aisle. I mean, I had no idea. So um, I'm very passionate about sharing this information with people. And um, so I really appreciate you giving me that opportunity. Um, but speaking about climate change, kind of going back to that, you know, what are our climate goals? So climate scientists say that we want to prevent heating, heating the earth more, no more than two degrees Celsius from pre-industrial temperatures by the end of this century. And then we have this aspirational goal of trying to limit it to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, and that way we would avert experiencing, you know, some of the worst case scenarios of climate change. So. That's our aspirational goal is, is no more than 1.5 degrees. Unfortunately, we are right now sitting at 1.1 degrees Celsius. Um, so we're two thirds of the way, over two thirds of the way to 1.5. And then something really interesting happened this year. You may have heard about it, um, Marikita, about El Nino. Have you heard about the El Nino effect? I haven't heard. I've heard a tiny bit, but 
not enough. Yeah, okay. so go ahead. Yeah, well, it's um, this is something that happens uh, in that the, the surface temperatures of the tropical Pacific Ocean fluctuate, and they oscillate uh, from getting warmer and cooler. And you know, when this happens, it does it just doesn't impact the surface temperatures of the water in the Pacific. It affects weather all over the planet. And so, for me, I love it because. This is a, a potent reminder of the interconnectivity of everything on the planet. So when this is happening in the Pacific, it's affecting everything. You know, we are all connected to each other. Um, and so right now we are in El Nino. So the surface temperatures, like I said, of the tropical Pacific Ocean are warmer. And what this means is that scientists say that for the first time ever, we got a sneak preview this summer of what living at a 1.5 degree Celsius world would look like. And uh, I think that's a pretty scary thing. Uh, just think about some of the things we experienced this summer. Okay. So like uh, there was this huge heat dome over the American Southwest, you know, like all summer. Phoenix, Arizona broke a record for 31 days, consecutive days of exceeding 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the coastal water temperature in Florida reached 101 degrees. Scientists were taking coral out of the water to try to save it. The water was getting so hot. And then we saw these huge wildfires in, uh, in uh, Canada, and it created such, uh, such air pollution all over the northeastern part of the United States. And even as far down as Kentucky, where I live, we had uh, air quality warnings for uh, several days. And I was wearing a, a, a mask on my walks uh, to try to protect my lungs. Um, and then like last month, there was the first tropical storm to hit California in 84 years. Uh, most tropical storms never make landfall in California, but this one did. Um, they got a, a year's worth of rain in one day. So some, these are some of the things that we've been seeing just locally. And then, of course, just last week, the horrible devastating floods in Libya, um, which were created because, you know, the dams broke a horrible loss of life. But it was uh, because, you know, they had 16 inches of rain in 24 hours. I mean, that was it, it was crazy. You know, a few years ago, we kept hearing things like uh, 100 year, 100 year storm. You remember hearing they would say this is a once in a 100 year storm. Have you noticed that media doesn't say that anymore? I mean, these storms are becoming so frequent. And that's because of climate change and this summer is because climate change and El Nino has shown us what living at 1.5 degrees Celsius could look like. And, you know, fortunately, El Nino is going to recede soon and we're going to get a little bit of a break. But, you know, it's all, it's all hands on deck time. I mean, we need to pull out all the stops and do everything that we can to reduce our emissions. And so um, that's why I think it's so important that you know we empower ourselves and, and make the choices that we can to uh, bring our own personal carbon emissions down. And we can do that very effectively uh, with food. Um, so I talked about our climate goals and El Nino. You may have heard earlier this year, Mataquita, that they, uh, some memos were leaked to the news media. These were internal memos from the fossil fuel industry. And I don't know if you remember hearing about this, but these memos said that the fossil fuel industry knew as early as the 1970s what their products were doing and what they were going to do to the planet. Right. So it, they knew about climate change as early as the 1970s. And so what did they do? They did a hard pivot into renewable energy. Right. And they developed solar and wind. No, <laughs> they didn't. They didn't do any of that. They suppressed the information. They buried it. And they led a misinformation campaign to try to convince Americans that uh, climate change was a hoax. And they did a really good job of that, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who even still today uh, don't think that climate change is real or that it has anything to do with what uh, humans are doing. So the, the, you know, the fossil fuel industry has led a really great disinformation campaign. Shocking thing for me to learn when I was researching my book is that the meat and dairy industries do the exact same thing. So they, they, the information I'm going to share with everyone tonight is information that the meat and dairy industries don't want Americans to know. 
and they try to keep hidden from us so that we will continue to buy their products. And how do I know that they don't want us to know this? Well, between the year 2000 and 2019, the meat industry in the United States spent $200 million lobbying Congress against climate change legislation. Why would the meat industry care about climate change? You would think, oh, the fossil fuel industry would be spending that kind of money. But no, it was the meat industry. We'll get to it in a minute why they would be doing that. Um, relative to each company's revenue, Tyson Chicken spends 33% more on political campaigns than ExxonMobil. I mean, that blew my mind. Why is the meat industry so involved in our politics? Uh, it's because they want politicians to do their bidding. And that exactly happened in 2015. So every five years, our government publishes a new set of dietary guidelines. And uh, they're supposed to be based on the latest nutritional science, you know, but my book talks about why, you know, that doesn't happen. But for the first time in 2015, the dietary guidelines said that a plant-based lifestyle was healthier, more sustainable, and was better at fighting climate change than the standard American diet. So what happened? The meat industry had a fit. They lobbied Congress hard. And a year later, that verbiage was stripped from the guidelines because the meat industry didn't want Americans to connect the food on their plate with the environment and with climate change. So the meat and dairy industries, uh, they're very protective of their products and they don't want us to make these connections. Uh, they want to keep us in the dark, just like the fossil fuel industry tried to keep us in the dark on climate change. So um, I'm going to show you things that the meat and dairy industry wish I wouldn't, but uh, let's let's do it. Um, okay. but first, but first, oh. uh, I want to say, uh -huh. no, this is good. So this is what okay. we're talking about tonight. But before we get into that, I want to first talk about two myths that are very prevalent in the green sustainability movement within food. There are a lot of things that are out there in the, uh, in the plant-based movement and also within just all of food that we hear about and there's the first one i want to talk about are plastic bags okay i'm going to show my age right now because i remember when i went to the grocery growing up uh you only had brown paper bags that's the only bag that you could get and then what happened they started introducing these plastic bags and so when you went through the checkout line the person bagging the groceries would ask you would you like paper or plastic well, I took a stand for the earth and I was going to do something green and, and good. And I, I said, I'm not going to ever use single use plastics and I'm going to stick with my brown paper bag uh, come hell or high water. That's what my mom would say. So <laughs> um, <laughs> then what happened? The, the, the grocery stores phased out paper bags and you only had plastic bags. And so what did I do? Well, I went out and bought me a cotton tote bag that I could carry back and forth to the grocery. And I went into the store proudly displaying my, my cotton cloth bag, virtue signaling, like, look at me, I'm doing this great thing for the earth and you can do it too. And we can stick it to the man. You know, we don't have to use these plastic bags at all. So guess what? A Dutch study came out uh, in 2019 and it supports some previous studies and it said that the most benign bag you can use for your groceries are, drum roll please, these plastic bags. <laughs> oh my God, I had it wrong the whole time. I thought I was doing something good and green for the earth, but it's, it's a myth that when we use something other than these plastic bags, we're doing something good for the planet. So this says when taking into account the impact of manufacturing on climate change, ozone depletion, water use, air pollution, human toxicity, these bags are the most benign of the current common options. So guess how many times I would have to use my brown paper bag um, to, for it to have the same environmental impact as using one of these plastic bags twice, once to bring my groceries home and another time to like line a trash can. Uh, do you have any idea, Marikita, how many times I would need to use my brown paper bag? No, I don't. I have no idea. <laughs> You're okay. blowing my mind. Yeah, I would have to use that brown paper bag 43 times. Now, I don't know about you. I could never use a brown paper bag 43 times. Uh, your mileage may vary, but 
inevitably after the third, fourth, fifth time, the handle's breaking off, the seams are ripping. I mean, I could just never get that kind of mileage out of a brown paper bag. So guess what? Guess how many times I would have to use my cotton tote bag for it to have the same environmental impact as using these plastic bags twice. If it was 43 for a paper bag, does uh, do you have any idea? <laughs> no. How about 150? 150. No, I would have to use that cotton tote bag 7,100 times. Oh my God. Blown. That means I'd have to use it once a day, every day for 19 years for it to have the same environmental impact as using one of these plastic bags twice. And if I bought an organic cotton tote bag, and, you know, organic cotton has a lower yield than conventional cotton. So if I had an organic cotton tote bag, I would have to use that bag 20,000 times. So that blew my mind when I learned that. And I was like, I had it backwards the whole time. You know, we everybody wants to do the right thing. And I was thinking I was doing something good and green for the earth, right? But, you know, we want to make sure that our actions are having the desired impacts. And, you know, the thing is, whatever bag you're using now, use it until it falls apart. Don't switch bags now. Just keep using what you got until it can't hold anything more. Uh, and you, we're going to find out in this presentation that it's not the bag that's the important thing. It's what goes in the bag. Okay, so that's the most important thing. And then the other myth is about um, buying local food. So this summer, I gave a presentation at a sustainability festival in my hometown, Lexington, Kentucky. And we have a vegan food truck here in Lexington. So since it was a, a sustainability festival, I thought surely they're going to have the vegan food truck there, but they didn't. They hired a food truck to come that was uh, proudly advertising that they were uh, using all local ingredients. So it was full of animal-based foods, but it was all sourced locally. So they had meat, chicken, fish, cheese, eggs, everything, but it was locally sourced. So this is a, uh, the, the presenters of this sustainability festival fell victim to this myth that uh, just because it's local means it's green, uh, but it doesn't. Let's look at this next slide here. So this shows the greenhouse gas emissions across the supply chain. And so what we're looking at is that red section of, of the, the top where it says transport. It's in the color red. So the food that's at the top of the list is beef herd. And you can see how many emissions they have. And there's just a tiny sliver of their emissions is transportation. In fact, um, only 0.5% of beef's greenhouse gas emissions comes from transportation. The rest of it is, is not related to transportation at all. And then if you look at the very bottom of that list, you see bananas. Bananas has the lowest uh, footprint of all these foods here. But look at the at the box to the right at the bottom. Bananas, 32.4% of their emissions comes from transportation. And it's still at the bottom of the list. So the, the science I share in my book says it's better for us to import plant-based foods from the other side of the planet, like bananas, than it is to source beef from our next door neighbor. Because it's not it's not where the food is grown in proximity to you to where you live. It's the the food. That, that makes the difference. So the transportation is just a small fraction. So it's a myth to think that when we buy local food, we're actually doing something green for the earth because we might not necessarily be doing that if we're buying locally sourced animal-based foods. And I'm all for supporting uh, my community and keeping my money in the local economy. I'm all for doing that, but it's a myth to think that when we do that with food, it's automatically doing something good for the earth. So I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> Both <laughs> no, of my like two it. myth busters. Um, so I'm going to share the, uh, a lot of charts tonight and a lot of information. And all these charts are in my book. And I love them because they are potent visual representations of the science. And it's really clear to see by these charts that uh, plant-based foods are far superior to animal-based foods in every environmental category. So I'm going to show this next chart. Oh, first of all, this before we get into that. So what are sustainable foods? So let's just, you know, go down the list here. So, so sustainable foods, they require less land to grow. They use less water to grow. They emit fewer greenhouse gas emissions. They contribute, contribute less to biodiversity loss and mass extinction rates. 
They have greater resilience. They are eaten, not wasted, and more. So the resilience part is really important because as our earth heats up, we're having greater droughts and a, a, a lot of uh, temperatures are getting really, really hot. So we need to find uh, crops that are resilient and can withstand uh, the heat and climate change, you know, that can thrive in that kind of environment. And then sustainable food is food that we eat and don't throw away. I was stunned to learn that according to the USDA, 30 to 40% of all food in the United States goes into a landfill. I mean, that is insane. Uh, you know, uh, we can't just keep throwing away that kind of food. Um, I mean, it's it's not it's not sustainable and it's it's a horrible return on the investment of all the resources that go into to growing that food. So um, we need to actually do better at uh, you know buying the food and eating the food that we buy or that we grow and not wasting. So. And now I was uh, kind of got ahead of myself. So now this next chart is about um, looking at different foods and their environmental impacts. So this one chart right here, I'm going to try to uh, go full screen here and hopefully, okay, cool, we did it. So there's five columns here. You can see greenhouse gases, land use, energy use, acidification potential, and eutrophication potential. And then, you know, plant-based foods are green, dairy and eggs are yellow, fish is blue, and meat is red. And you can just take a quick glance at this chart and you can see that you know, plant-based foods are killing it. I mean, they are so much better for the environment. They emit fewer greenhouse gases. They require a lot less land. Um, they require less energy, the acidification potential and eutrophication potential. I mean, they are far superior in every category to animal-based foods. And, you know, I could just really, I could just probably do a mic drop right here and say goodnight <laughs> because that's like, you know, that just shows, you know, my point is like, you know, so for sustainable foods, you know, we want to embrace plant-based foods because they're so much better. They're so much better for uh, the environment and for the earth. <clears throat> and this chart is in my book, but it's also, it's not in color, unfortunately, because my book's not in color. <laughs> um, and then this chart is also in my book. So generally speaking, plant-based foods generate fewer greenhouse gas emissions than animal-based foods, which we just saw on the previous uh, chart. And the same is true for protein-rich plant-based foods. So I wanted to put this in my presentation because, as you know, Marikita, when you tell someone you're plant-based or you're thinking about doing it, people are like, oh, my God, you're going to be protein-deprived. Where are you going to get your protein? Uh, you know, so, you know, we all hear that. And so this chart is just focused on protein-rich foods. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so it is... Uh, also comparing short-lived and long-lived greenhouse gases. So the long-lived greenhouse gases are the bluish-gray gases. And then the short-lived in this graph are the purple, and that's methane. And we'll talk about methane in a minute. So, But even without methane, if you look at the, the four foods at the bottom, tofu, beans, peas, and nuts, those are high-protein plant-based foods. And they really don't have uh, any methane emissions, so we don't have to really worry about that. But even if we discounted methane from them, their footprint, uh, the footprint of many plant-based foods can be um, more than 10 times less than animal-based foods. So that's how much better they are in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And you know, everything above those four there are all uh, animal-based foods. And you can see how much, uh, more uh, the bar is there so there's so much so many more emissions there and then when you add the short-lived greenhouse gas of methane it's um it's <clears throat> really off the chart and so we want to talk about about methane so methane is a short-lived greenhouse gas and when i say short-lived most of it is gone in the atmosphere after about tw 12 years but it's still, some of it still remains in the atmosphere and it is so potent. So in its first 20 years, uh, methane is 80 times more efficient at trapping heat into our atmosphere than carbon dioxide. You know, carbon dioxide is what we get when we burn fossil fuels, right? So that's what we're trying to 
we're trying to move away from, but methane is 80 times worse than carbon dioxide in the first 20 years. And then this chart shows that, you know, they're looking at the global warming potential over a hundred year period because uh, long lived gases stay in the atmosphere for centuries like carbon dioxide. So um, even, even though most of the methane is gone in the first 12 years, over a hundred year period, I just read today, uh, methane is 28 times more efficient at trapping heat into the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. So it's 28 times worse. The global warming potential over a hundred year period of methane is 28 times more than carbon dioxide. So that's why I say, well, uh, where does the, uh, where does methane come from in animal, in animal based foods? It's because ruminant meat. So ruminant animals have a multi-chambered stomach and when they digest their food, um, they do it through a process called enteric fermentation and that produces methane and they belch methane. And so according to the EPA, the single largest source of methane in the United States comes from animal agriculture, from enteric fermentation and from manure. So, uh, you know, that's why I say ruminant meat, cows, sheep, lamb and goats, that's the low hanging fruit. If you make any, if you make one change in your diet, you know, getting rid of ruminant meat, uh, it makes a huge difference in for the environment. Uh, it re re reduces emissions so much, excuse me. <laughs> And you know, we had uh, the one year anniversary just, just a, a few weeks ago of the Inflation Reduction Act, which was uh, enacted by Congress last summer. And it was the first piece of legislation aimed at curbing the United States greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and historically speaking, the United States has been the single largest emitter of greenhouse gases. So uh, it's been a long time coming, but we finally did it. We finally passed some legislation to try to curb emissions, and I'm all for it. I think it's great, but it's just the beginning, and we need to do more. I downloaded the um, the Inflation Reduction Act and looked at the climate uh, component of it, and it does talk about methane, but it ignores methane from animals. It doesn't even talk about meat or dairy or, or anything about methane from uh, animals and animal agriculture. And... You know, why is it that, according to the EPA, it's the largest source of methane in the country, but we're ignoring it? It's because the meat industry has politicians in their pocket, you know, because they've they've contributed to their political camp campaigns to get them elected. And then they lobby them hard to make sure that they don't uh, pass any legislation that would uh, curtail their activity. So it's like I was saying at the beginning, they've taken a play right out of the fossil fuel industry's playbook. So, yeah. And here's two other charts that are in my book. So the first one on the on the left is land use per uh, thousand kilocalories of food. And the first nine, I think, are animal based foods. So you have beef, lamb, mutton, cheese, beef, dairy, milk, pig meat, poultry, farm fish and eggs. So all those are animal based foods. Those are at the top. They use more land than all the foods down at the bottom, which are plant based foods. So it takes a hundred times more land to produce a single gram of protein from beef or land than from tofu, a hundred times more land. Uh, that's, that is crazy. And, you know, I didn't say earlier when I talked about the importance of agriculture, I was shocked to find out that half of the earth, half of the, half of the land mass on this planet is dedicated to agriculture. 50% of the land on earth, we are now dedicating to agriculture. And 75% of the global farmland is used by animal-based foods, but it's only producing 18% of our calories. I'll say that again, 75% of the global farmland we're using for animal-based foods and we're only getting 18% of our calories out of that. That is a horrible return on investment. We, we can't continue to do that. We need, you know, we don't have more land to to, um, you know, to convert to agriculture. We just can't do it. We're already outside the, um, the safe operating space in many areas on our planet and agriculture we are, we've exceeded, uh, we can't expand no more. We can't do more deforestation to, to grow more crops. So we have to get more efficient and we have to, 
we have to prioritize, you know, what kind of crops we're going to grow. Um, and I advocate for us moving away from uh, animal-based foods and growing crops for human consumption instead of animal consumption. And that would save so many resources. <clears throat> and then the water requirement per ton of food is the graph on the right. And, you know, beef, again, is the top top one in, in all these charts, beef is going to be at the top of the chart. It takes so many resources to create, you know, a, a $4 burger. Um, it's, it's really insane. And, you know, how is it that we can have a $4 burger when we have all, we have all these environmental inputs? It's, it's because our government subsidizes meat tremendously. You know, I think it was in 2021, the government gave the, the beef industry $9 billion in handouts in direct and indirect payments, $9 billion. Uh, that's why we can have a $4 burger at Burger King. If we were really paying the costs up front, you know, hamburgers and, and all meat would be really, really expensive because it's a luxury item, you know, but we don't think it's luxury items anymore because the government's subsidizing all of this. Um, so unfortunately, the second one on the list in the water requirement is nuts. And, you know, there's been some pushback about uh, almond milk as a substitute for uh, cow's milk. And people have been saying, you know, those almond trees are so thirsty, y'all, you shouldn't be doing that. But, um, you know, almond trees do require a lot of water, but they also sequester a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. So they are uh, actually helping us with the decarbonization of the, of the planet. Um, and to create uh, almond milk, you use a third of the water that you do to create cow's milk. So it's still better. And there are other, you know, we're not limited to almond milk for our plant-based milk. There's other milks that we can use. So to say, you know, all those almond trees are so thirsty, you all just drink cow's milk. Well, no, okay, you don't have to drink almond milk. You know, I think the, the, the uh, nut milk or the plant-based milk that's the best, I think, for the environment overall is soy milk still. And uh, <clears throat> Marikita, you may have heard of this in the news too. So uh, due to climate change, you know, the Colorado River is really at risk of drying up and because we've had such severe droughts out, out west. And that's a real problem because states like Arizona, California, and Nevada use that water out of the Colorado River. Um, and so the, earlier this year, those three states came together and they came to an agreement on how they were going to allocate that water uh, considering climate change and how things had changed. So. Uh, that was a, a great historic agreement that they were able to do that. But the shocking thing that I learned was only out of all the water that we take out of the Colorado River, only 12% of it is used for, by, by residents for residential use. 55% uh, of the water that we take out of the Colorado River, we use to grow alfalfa, hay, grasses, corn silage for livestock. 55% growing all these crops for animals and food that we don't need and will be better off without. So it, it's it's crazy to look at all this, uh, all the resources that, that go into creating animal-based foods. In fact, um, it's so huge as Stephen Chu, who was in 2019, he was a president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He was the 12th Energy Secretary of the United States and a Nobel Prize recipient. And he said, if cattle and dairy cows were a country, they would have more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire EU 28. And he said that before Brexit. So now it's the EU 27 and uh, the UK. But that's a mind boggling statement. You think about it. I mean, if we could do something that could, could remove all the emissions from the EU and the UK, I mean, we would want to do that, right? But most people, think, yeah, I mean, we would want to do that, or we at least want to consider it. But, you know, we think because we were born into the matrix, we think that we need all these cattle and dairy cows, right? Because, you know, where would we get our protein and where would we get our calcium? Because we've been, you know, brainwashed into thinking that these are the only ways of, of, of getting those nutrients when it's not. So for most people, because they're living in the matrix, they can't even think about uh, this being a viable solution to our energy problems when it is, you know, once you become plant-based and escape the matrix, you, you just say, we'll just get rid of the cows, you know, <laughs> it would be so much better. Um, and then the World Bank Group, 
said that uh, livestock and their byproducts actually account for at least 32,564 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent or 51% of annual worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. 51% of all of our emissions are coming from livestock and their byproducts. I mean, when I, when I learned that, it, it just blew my mind. And again, why isn't the mainstream media talking about that? It's because the meat and dairy industries have the media in their pocket. Again, I mean, people don't want to hear this. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping people who are hearing this are getting as fired up as I am when I, when I talk about this. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we now have these amazing plant-based meat alternatives on the market. You know, we have Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat and uh, all kinds of um, amazing plant-based foods that uh, imitate, you know, meat, uh, but they're so much better for our health and for the environment. You know, there's been so many um, new products that have come out uh, since like 2019 or something. It's, it's insane. Um, and, you know, I love these foods because to me, they are perfect gateway plant-based foods. Um, you know, I grew up, my mom, she centered every meal around a piece of animal protein on my plate. It was either chicken or pork or meat, you know, a hamburger or something like that. And then the vegetables were just like playing second fiddle to the main attraction, which was the meat. So if we can just make the transition uh, into plant-based eating, substituting the animal protein on our plate with one of these plant-based meat alternatives, it's, more, it's so seamless, you know. Uh, you can use the same recipe that your mom made that your you know your favorite recipes and just substitute like i said the animal protein with uh, a plant-based meat alternative and it's going to be so much better for the planet and it'll be better for your health and it'll be a win for the animals they'll appreciate it too right so uh, for instance Compared to a beef burger, a Beyond Meat burger generates 90% fewer greenhouse gas emissions, requires 46% less energy, has 99% less impact on water scarcity, and has 93% less impact on land use. That is a huge win for the environment. And the Beyond Burger tastes great. You know, um, some people complain, you know, it's a processed food. Uh, and it is true. It is processed. And... You know, I, I advocate for a whole foods, plant-based lifestyle, and I encourage people to eat as many unprocessed foods as possible, whole fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, seeds, grains, you know, all of that. But I still grill up one of these burgers every now and then. And, um, you know, eating one salad doesn't make you healthy and eating one steak doesn't ruin your health, you know? So eating one of these plant-based meat alternatives you know, once, twice a month or whatever, it's never, it's not going to ruin your health. And it'll be better for you than eating, you know, the animal-based food. And it's so much better for the planet. So um, I think it could be used, these plant-based meat alternatives could be a great, you know, way for people who are eating meat to segue into more plant-based eating and, um, you know, and, and then gradually move in more into eating whole plant-based foods. And so... The Anthropocene is the epic that we're living in now. So that's the epic where humans, unfortunately, are having the greatest impact on the environment and the climate. And so that's what Anthropocene means. But this Eat Lancet Commission came together. The Lancet is a British weekly peer-reviewed medical journal, highly regarded, highly esteemed medical journal. And so what they tried to do is they said, you know, we've got these climate goals and we're, we're trying to uh, create a sustainable future and like I said earlier, scientists say, you know, we can't reach our goals without also decarbonizing the food production system. So that's what they tried to tackle. They said, okay, how can we do that? How can we have sustainable food and healthy diets and meet our, meet our climate goals? And <clears throat> their report came out and it said, 820 million people on the planet are food insecure. That's 10%. Of our, of our global population are food insecure. They don't get enough food. And 2 billion people, I think they said, were nutritionally insecure. They're not getting the nutrients that they need from the foods that they're eating. So we have a real problem um, with, uh, within our food system that we need to address. Um, 
And the other thing that shook me to my core is they said, global food production threatens the stability of the earth system. That blew my mind. I think if you ask most people, they would say, oh, the fossil fuel industry, right? They're destroying the planet or it's all these cars that we're driving. No, it's the global food production is trying to feed 8 billion people uh, animal based centered diet, you know, meat and dairy, uh, as you have seen from the charts we've already looked at, that is the animal based foods that are taking the lion's share of our resources. And so what they said now i want to just come out front and say that the lancet commission the anthropocene eat lancet commission did not say we all have to become plant-based and vegan no they didn't say that but they said we need to see a widespread adoption of a plant-based lifestyle if we're to avert the worst case scenarios of climate change all their recommendations for animal-based foods start at zero grams a day why would they start out at zero grams a day if they didn't think that was healthy? I mean, their whole idea is to to tell us, you know, what a healthy diet would look like. But they know people probably aren't going to become 100% plant-based, right? So they said you could have chicken once a week. They set guidelines, you know, red meat maybe once a week. Uh, you could have fish a couple times a week. So it's a it's mainly a Mediterranean Mediterranean diet you know, back when the Mediterranean uh, diet was, you know, super healthy. And, you know, I, I think that you don't need those animal-based foods, but I think if, if they had come out and said, we all need to be plant-based, I think people would have really freaked out. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, I hear a lot of people saying, okay, Stuart, you know, uh, I know that plant-based foods are more sustainable, but we can make animal-based foods more sustainable. We can grow them in a more efficient and more sustainable way, right? So I know that there are dairy farmers that are trying to capture the methane from their cows and they're trying to convert it into biogas and have like a carbon neutral uh, loop in their production of dairy, which is, you know, very high tech, uh, unproven to, to work and especially isn't something that you could do at scale, uh, you know, around the, the earth, you know, you just couldn't do that. And then there are some people who say, well, we can, do rotational grazing of livestock. And that way, uh, ruminant animals are helping store carbon into the earth. Have you heard about that, Mariquita? No, no, I haven't heard no. about that. Yeah, it's something, it's again, one of those myths. It's kind of like a plastic bag <laughs> or buying <laughs> local food. So they say that, you know, uh, these animals, if you rotate them through different pastures, that um, they actually can still help their earth store more carbon. So I, listen, I was listening to this podcast by these three guys, and their podcast is all about carbon. It's all about, you know, the carbon crisis, decarbonizing our, our, our earth, basically. Um, and so they were saying, yeah, farmers are a little resistant to this rotational grazing of livestock because they have to divide their pasture into four different parcels. So they need additional fencing. And then each pasture needs to have a water supply, so they have to bring water into it. So there's upfront costs. But then, you know, they, they let the animals graze in one in one pasture and move them to the other. And so they rotate them around. And so this this is thought to make um, animal-based food from ruminant animals more sustainable. Well, the uh, most that you could ever hope to sequester of ruminant animals' emissions you know, if, if you had the you know, perfect ideal number of animals per acre and you had like the perfect uh, soil mo moisture content, you know, everything at this ideal level, the most you could ever hope to reduce of their emissions would be about 22 percent. That's the most you could ever reduce their emissions. So, um, you know, when you're trapped in the matrix like these guys on this podcast were, they can't see the elephant in the room or in this case the cow in the room because to them it's not it, it's it's a given it has to be there but when you escape the matrix you you just step back and you say hey you know we can reduce their emissions 100 percent by not having the cow you know we don't <laughs> need the cow right so yeah it blows my mind um so what this commission said is that we could decrease our greenhouse gas emissions in food production by 10% by year 2050. But if we increased our plant-based consumption 
uh, with making this adjustment to a widespread plant-based diet, you know, we could reduce the emissions from food about 80%. So rather than trying to reduce cows emissions by 22%, I think we'd be better off trying to reduce yeah. emissions by 80%, right? Um, so definitely. I've given a lot of information today. We, we need to wrap up here pretty soon so I can get some answer some questions. But if people only remember one number from my presentation, I hope they'll walk away remembering 73% because the Oxford University did a five-year study and they analyzed over 38,000 farms in 119 countries. And they determined that in America, where the population eats three times more meat per capita than the global average, that we can lower our carbon footprint by 73% simply by giving up animal-based foods and adopting a plant-based lifestyle. There's no single other thing that we could do that could lower our personal carbon footprint that much. I mean, we could stop taking flights. We could uh, drive an electric car. We could take shorter showers. You know, there's a lot of things that we think we could do that would be, you know, could make a difference. But there's nothing that compares to simply um, giving up animal-based foods and adopting a plant-based lifestyle. And people will say, well, Stuart, that's great. That's good for the earth. But what about me? If I give up eating animal-based foods, my health is going to go down the toilet, right? Um, so we'll just kind of go through. No, your, your, your health is actually going to be just fine. So the U.S. Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics says that a plant-based lifestyle contains all the nutrients that we need to be healthy at any stage of life. So this is a, a, uh, a lifestyle that is not only better for the earth, it's saving all these resources, uh, it's certainly beneficial to the animals, and it's actually beneficial to our health too. And then the National Institute of Health, I was really surprised, Merida Kita, when I ran across this memo from the National Institute of Health. <clears throat> that they sent to all physicians and they said physicians should consider recommending a plant-based diet to all their patients, especially those with high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, or obesity. And in their conclusion, they write, the future of healthcare will involve an evolution toward a paradigm where the prevention and treatment of disease is centered not on a pill or surgical procedure, but on another serving of fruits and vegetables. Now, Guess when this memo came out to, that they sent to all doctors? You have any idea what year it would have been? <laughs> I don't know. 10 years, 20 years ago, 10, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, 2013. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, and, uh, you know, I just now uncovered it when I was doing the research for my book. I don't think anyone, uh, you know, in the media has reported on this. Um, and when I, I have to say that when I read this last part about uh, replacing pills and surgical procedures with other servings of fruits and vegetables, I thought, uh, I don't know, I, I was skeptical, I'll say. I was skeptical that that would be done or that could be done because in our society, people just, you know, they want a quick fix. They want a pill. They want a surgery. Don't, they don't want to make a lifestyle change. And, you know, they want a quick fix. And, you know, that's what the pharmaceutical industry promotes is, is a quick and easy fix. You can just keep living your life the way you always have been and just take this pill. Um, so I heard about this. I went to a Future of Food Summit last year, and I heard about this pilot program that they were doing in Washington, D.C., and it's called D.C. Greens. And this is an amazing program because they're doing exactly what the National Institute of Health said would be happening, this paradigm shift from, you know, prescribing fruits and vegetables. So they have a produce prescription program, and this is for people who are uh, Medicaid recipients who have chronic health conditions. And so the doctors are writing prescriptions for fresh fruits and vegetables. And you might think, you know, why? I think it's up to $120 a month. And so you may be thinking, well, why is the government spending money uh, in this way? You know, what, what's, you know, why is our tax dollars being used to buy fruits and vegetables for uh, these, these uh, patients? Well, they found out in this pilot program um, that for every dollar that they're spending on these produce prescriptions, we're saving $3 in healthcare costs. And that's just the beginning. This is just the pilot program. So that's the tip of the iceberg. So 
yeah, that National Institute of Health was right. You know, doctors will be prescribing fruits and vegetables rather than pills and surgical procedures, and it works. It, it brings people off their medications um, that they were taking for high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, so it, it's it's amazing. So that's the power of plants. And I think we should now, it's like 50 minutes. I think we should just move right on into some questions and answers. And I love this quote. We'll kind of end it here with Mark Twain. The lesser it is to justify a traditional custom, the harder it is to get rid of it. The tradition of eating meat in our country and in the world, you know, has to come to an end. Um, we just cannot, it's not sustainable. And um, I hope that everyone who's was here tonight uh, saw the slides and can see that we cannot continue the tradition of, of eating meat. And the problem is that it's hard to get rid of something that's, you know, you can't justify it. and it's ubiquitous and it's everywhere. But, you know, plant-based lifestyle, is, it's never been easier now to adopt a plant-based lifestyle than it is today. It's so easy and there's so many uh, resources online. There's so many vegan cookbooks, uh, vegan groups to connect with, uh, so many products available in the groceries now. So it is a very powerful time, uh, easy time to become plant-based. Uh, so I encourage everybody to escape the matrix, um, <laughs> choose the red pill and, um, you know, eat plants, feel great and save the planet. So I don't know if we have uh, any questions in the chat or anything. We have some time or if you okay. have any questions. for Akita. Yeah, let me take I'm going to take the slides down and. Um, let's see here. Yeah, that was um, very informative. It was um, I mean, how, how do you handle I mean, there was so much information. I'm going to have to go back and study it. Um, yeah, it's a lot. Handle? Yeah, it's a lot. And wow, you've done your homework. It's, I'm very impressed. Uh, thanks. So, and, and if, if you're watching, please subscribe. Let me say that. And also, I want to say that if you're liking this, that we're, we did it.help. We're having a climate healer certification program. We're getting that going. So in the next Great. coming up soon, because we need to find, we need to learn these facts, right? and yeah. take back i mean so we can mm -hmm. have powerful conversations so what about your family are they are they plant-based yeah <clears throat> i'm really fortunate that my family we we decided to do this you know as a family and um we, we fully embraced it you know i know for some people it's a it's a gradual transition and for us it was you know overnight cold turkey and um you know, I can I can share a little bit about my story. You know, we first became plant based Madikita back in 1985 when I was 23. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it was the vegan wasteland back then in Kentucky, for sure. Uh, we didn't have Beyond Meat burgers or anything like that. You know, we had to create our own vegan food. In fact, we couldn't even you know, there's no, uh, you know, Internet at that time, really. So we, we actually, a group of people, we adopted this way of eating and we had uh, weekly potlucks every Friday night and we started collecting recipes and we actually published our own vegan cookbook back in 1986, little spiral bound uh, notebook of all of our recipes and I still have a copy of it. Um, but unfortunately, I just started doing a lot of traveling as you mentioned in my introduction and it was easier to be, stay plant-based traveling internationally, but traveling in the United States in 1987 and 88, it was impossible to be vegan. You just couldn't do it and sustain yourself. You could only eat so many iceberg lettuce salads, you know? <laughs> so um, I reluctantly became vegetarian. And then like in 2008 and eight became plant-based again. And, and it was a lot easier and it's just getting easier and easier. So, yeah. So my, my family's fully on board, you know, what a and blessing, I know. Very it is, fortunate. it is. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. So I see that JJ's here watching with us. She's got a great channel, Vegan Knowledge. She's really spreading the word to her community. That's wonderful. Sorry, and, JJ. And then, like, I don't know who this is, but they like the quote that you just um, <laughs> put well, up. That was a, yeah, a great way nice. to end that little Thanks slideshow. Thanks for being here. Yeah, and then Peter, he's the founder of We Did It Health. You know, yeah, Peter, nice Peter. Yeah, I know the National Institute of Health isn't perfect. Um, you know, they support animal testing and 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 places 
uh, around the world uh, that they couldn't do here. So I know there's some blowback about the National Institute of Health, but I agree with you. I think um, when it comes to health, they are insulated from the pressures from the industry and from lobbyists. And so they're more often than not, they're getting the science right. So. <clears throat> yeah. And um, Peter also has another comment that um, President Carter's administration took measures. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love Jimmy Carter. I, I love so many things that he's done in his life. And yeah, President Reagan came in and, and of course, reversed all the um, progress we had made um, because of the oil crisis at the time. But yeah. Yeah, well, so. So what would you say to um, someone that's really struggling and, and they've got a friend that, that now they're going out to dinner with their friend for the first time and they're going to have to present that, you know, I, I eat plants, I don't eat animals and, and you know, they're kind of scared that if they're scared, the friend's going to make fun of them. What would you say to that person, Stuart? How would, you know, what would you well, recommend how to handle well, that? Well, yeah, um, well, I think when you're making plans with somebody who's an omnivore and that's eating animal-based foods, you know, you, uh, it would be good to discuss ahead of time where it is you're going to go to eat. And then you can check to see if there's something for you to eat on the menu. Uh, you know, even the hardcore steakhouse, you know, has a, a baked potato and a salad. So, you know, sometimes it's more important to have time together and we learned through the pandemic, you know, how, how important that is and how precious it is to have time together. Um, so I think, you know, trying to negotiate where you go and then trying to find a place that's mutually uh, agreeable to both parties. Um, you know, and I think that, I think that it's, it's important to just do your thing, you know, and not make a big deal out of the fact that you're, uh, plant-based and you know I think you know what happens and I talk about this in my book is that plant-based eaters um, because they're uncomfortable with their own meat eating go through uh, you know when they're in the presence of a plant-based eater they have all kinds of cognitive dissonance that's happening and they go through this all these mental gymnastics to justify you know their eating pattern and so, you know, a, a vegan and plant-based eater doesn't have to be obnoxious or, you know, militant about it. Just by being in our presence, you know, some omnivores are going to have strong reactions because, you know, they, in their heart, they know better, but they don't do better. And that's where that uh, comes from. So, you know, I think just know that if, if that should happen, if, if someone gets, you know, very angry or upset or something, just know it's not you. It's, it's their own uh, feelings about, you know, how they're living their life. And you're just uh, bringing, you know, an awareness to them that that it's, it's uh, not necessary, that the animal-based foods that they are eating uh, is that they're doing it um, by choice but that is not necessary. And that makes people really uncomfortable. So I think, you know, being aware of that um, and, you know, just trying to be discreet as much as you can about it. Um, but, I, you know, I, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't take an omnivore to a vegan restaurant without, you know, making sure that they knew that's what was happening. Uh, so, you know, if you pick a vegan restaurant and you're, you're taking, you know, you're meeting up with an omnivore, make sure that they know that. Otherwise, it, it could be really problematic. Some people get really, really angry <laughs> about that. So I don't know <laughs> right. if I answered well, yeah. your question. It's kind of a long way of getting around. <laughs> no, I think that it's right. I mean, we got to, we have to be gentle. We have to, we don't want to turn someone off and we can easily turn yeah. them off. Just our presence, like you were saying, can turn, make, yeah. you know, make somebody very angry and very defensive. Yeah, and it's so. really a lot of times it's it's nothing that we've done. It's just because we're we're going against against what uh, society says is the norm, and uh, that makes some people uncomfortable. So, yeah, I think you know we have um, a problem in the plant based movement with um, being judgy. Honestly, you know, and I I have done it, I, I've done it myself with uh, people 
judging them for their food choices. But, you know, I spent the first 23 years of my life eating meat, so I can't point my finger at anybody that's still there doing it. And I say that in my book, you know, I'm not about blaming and shaming people because I think that just uh, is not the, an effective way to bring about change. So, um, you know, I think we just lead by example. But, you know, we can't just keep waiting for people, for the light bulb to go off, which is why I wrote my book, you know. Uh, time is of the essence. It's it's really critical right now that we uh, make changes fast to avert these worst case scenarios of climate change, and um, you know it, it's time. So uh, I do believe that you know people need to um, kind of get there in their own time, but we kind of need to speed up the the timeline. The timeline we need to um, convert uh, a lot more people to thinking about this um, as an option. And you know I want to go back. Well, you don't have the slides, but, you know, I, I, I had a slide in there that said, you know, the question was, do I have to become 100% plant-based, you know? And, um, no, you don't have to become 100% plant-based. Uh, any reduction you can make in eating animal-based foods, you know, the better it'll be for your health and for the planet. And I think we turn a lot of people off by uh, saying that it has to be 100%. You know, it's 100% for me, but still, I, I'm, I'm not perfect, you know? Um, you know, I'm sure there are things that I did today that uh, could be considered non-vegan. You know, I try my best. And, you know, I think we all should just try to do the best we can where we are with what we have at the time. And, you know, we would win more people over if we were less judgy <laughs> about, you know, what people were eating. Um, so. Right. Exactly. You're right. And that's what we want to do at We Did It Not Health. You know, we want to be able to to show people how to communicate effectively without judging, mm -hmm. without shaming. We can't blame. We have to remember that we, most of us, we're not always vegan or plant-based. And I just want to show, you know, Peter is always talking about the new pharmacy, right? And that, I love mm -hmm. that, that, that part of your presentation. That. that gave me so much hope, you know, to yeah. hear that, that, that the um, pilot, um, so, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I would love to do that. And uh, I, I would love to see that program you know, replicated uh, all over the U.S., but particularly in my home state of Kentucky. You know, my, my state's a beautiful state with, you know, amazing, wonderful people, but we're one of the least healthiest states in our nation, you know. So uh, a, a pilot program for uh, produce prescriptions would be amazing. It would transform so many lives uh, in, in our state. So I would really love to talk to anybody who would have the power to help, you know, bring that to Kentucky. So yeah, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. Let me show one more comment. And I think it says BJ and I'm thinking that's BJ from Climate Healers. Once our eyes are okay. open, we can't pretend they are closed. So yeah, this yeah. is a time to take action. Like Stuart's saying, you know, I mean, we, we've mm -hmm. got to do something. We've got to be able to use our voices. We've got to, that means work on ourselves because if we're scared and shy and I used to be very shy. Right. That's not mm -hmm. going to help. The, that's not going to help the earth. Yeah, I, I mean, really got to step into my power. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for so many years. So why did I write my book? You know, now it's because, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's a critical time. We need all the resources out there that we can get. You know, my book will reach some people that another book can't, you know, so uh, but I was really motivated by a vegan activist who said, you know, we all have a part to play in this. And, you know, what can you do if you're an artist, you know, do vegan art. If you're a writer, you know, write, write something vegan. So um, and I really took his words to heart. And so that's, that's why I did my book, because I wanted to do my part. Uh, and it takes a village. It takes all of us. And um, yeah, so. Yeah. It does, right? Even and you know, Dr. Clopper's reading your book, so <laughs> yeah. it's it's boom, it's booming. So everybody, get a copy of Stuart's book. I guess we should wrap this up, um, so right. <laughs> so we can. But yeah, so can you show us the book again? It, it, it's yeah. behind, I see it behind see. you. So escape the meat. Yeah. So and tell us. And so you're on. We can get this on Amazon. Yes, it's available on, on Amazon. I have a paperback, hardback, and ebook. And um, you can find me at my website, stewartswaldner.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so, yeah, uh, please check out my book. It's a great reference book, it's a science based book. It has over 400 
uh, citations in it. And, um, you know, it's full of science. Um, and all those charts I was showing earlier, they're, they're in my book. So I think it's a great book to introduce people to this way of eating. I try to cover all the reasons why it is so important. So I don't just focus on the environment like I did in tonight's presentation. I, I encompass, um, you know, animal welfare. I have a large chapter on health too. And I have anecdotes, you know, spread through the book of my personal life. So um, yeah, I uh, hope people will check it out. And uh, yeah, let's eat Definitely. plants, let's go. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. So this has been so much fun. Everybody hit subscribe because we'll definitely have Stuart back on again. We were already talking about his next his next presentation. So <laughs> thank you so much, everybody, for watching. Thank you, Peter um, and BJ and JJ. We got all these. <laughs> and whoever yeah. else is watching on the replay, make sure you get the book. And thank you so much, Stuart. This has been very Thank you, Marikita. It's, it's my pleasure. Fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Namaste vegan, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.